Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me now is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going pretty good, Natalie. You know, covering the Supreme Court is one of those weird beats where, like, you don't know who you're going to find yourself interviewing. For instance, yesterday I found myself outside of the Supreme Court interviewing the actor-director Rob Reiner about, of all things, the independent state legislature theory. And that was just not something that I had on my bingo card at the beginning of the day. Wait, wait, wait. You have to back up. Tell me how this happened. (laughs) (laughs) So, obviously, there was the big Moore versus Harper arguments this week that we're going to be talking about um, for our main segment. And I was at the court yesterday for what was ultimately like a more than three-hour hearing. And afterwards, I kind of was... Uh, attending or kneeling uh, before some of the uh, uh, press conferences, trying to get my, you know, my microphone up to the, uh, or my, my, my recorder up to the microphone where some of the attorneys were giving remarks after the case. And I'm about to leave. And I see this kind of bearded gentleman milling about on the edge, on the periphery of the, of the Supreme court plaza. There's a couple of people around him and I'm looking at him. I'm thinking that guy looks so familiar. And then I realized, I think that's Rob Reiner, the, you know, the Hollywood director of classics like uh, When Harry Met Sally. Uh, turns out, I didn't even know this at the time, but A Few Good Men. He also did that one. Uh, Princess Bride, one of my faves. So went up, introduced myself, and I guess I just had literally n- no other questions in mind. So I was like, <laughs> what were your thoughts on the case? So we had kind of a <laughs> three-minute interview about uh, election law. Um, and uh, yeah, he was a pretty sophisticated uh, a cat when it came to uh, knowing the ins and outs of the case. So I was, I was he definitely was impressed. A, he was just a casual um, observer for the case? I, I don't know exactly what he was doing there um, other than I know he's uh, you know a pretty prominent uh, liberal voice in Hollywood, uh, especially when it comes to some of these uh, things like partisan gerrymandering. And he was a big um, anti-Trump voice during the Trump years and was really concerned about the implications of the election law theory that they were uh, th- that these Republican lawmakers from North Carolina were promoting in the case that we're going to talk all about later on. But uh, <laughs> yeah, just one of those random things, I suppose. Well, I, I think it does speak to, as you're saying, just how big a case this one is. Um, and yes, we are going to dive into it in just a few moments. Um, but before that, uh, Jimmy, I know you've also been following the latest Um, in the conversation around ethics in the court. And there's been a hearing earlier today. Um, I know you were were actually slightly delayed in recording our usual time just because that hearing's been going on so long. Uh, Can you just give us a brief update? Yeah, that's right. The House Judiciary Committee heard testimony today from a man named Rob Shank, who we've talked about on the podcast before. He is the former evangelical leader who has come forward as a whistleblower now and has revealed... Uh, basically a secret and years-long mission where he describes having deployed his wealthy conservative donors to essentially ingratiate themselves with conservative justices on the Supreme Court in order to influence them or, in in his words, shore up their resolve in uh, cases on things like abortion, contraception coverage, um, etc. So Shank essentially elaborated on some of the allegations that he's made in the press and in a previous letter that he has sent this to the Supreme Court, um, describing this what he is what he has called um, Operation Higher Court. This is this Christian mission over the course of around you know twenty years to influence their votes in these cases. 
and he describes essentially what he calls, quote, stealth missionaries. These are, um, as I said, donors who are prominent in you know certain uh, powerful circles around Washington, including, for instance, things like the Supreme Court Historical Society. And Shank was able to encourage these donors to use their access to the justices, whether they be through these social functions or through other things like prayer sessions, in order to kind of let them know that there are a lot of Americans, essentially, who feel the same way. The whole idea was not necessarily to change their votes in certain cases, but to just embolden them. He called it our ministry of emboldenment, was the phrase he basically used. And he spoke more to what we had talked about on you know a recent episode involving the alleged confidentiality breach um, surrounding Justice Alito, where in a 2014 case, this whistleblower, Rob Shank, claims he was given advance notice by one of these missionaries who had dined with Justice Alito and had been told of the outcome in the 2014 Hobby Lobby case. Uh, Shank basically said that he sent a letter over the summer to Chief Justice John Roberts documenting this allegation about this uh, confidentiality breach in the hopes that, you know, it would avoid some court subordinate, maybe a staffer or someone in, you know, some random far-flung corner of the court building from being unfairly blamed for this uh, recent leak of Justice Alito's draft opinion overturning Roe versus Wade in the case Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. The thinking was that, you know, a court subordinate could be unfairly blamed, whereas, you know, a, a member of the court is not really going to face any significant consequences. The implication there obviously being that Justice Alito was the one who potentially leaked Dobbs as well. At least that was the suggestion from Shank. What kind of reception did Schenck's testimony get in the committee? Well, it was clearly split along partisan lines. Democrats were happy to hear everything that he was saying, um, confirming basically everything that they've thought about this conservative Supreme Court in that they are kind of a little bit too chummy with certain uh, conservative and uh, interests on the religious right. Republicans, however, were very quick to label Schenck a liar and a con man and uh, cast doubt on the veracity of his claims, saying he's basically uh, made his career out of bilking rich people out of money, whether that be for many years in the religious movement and now perhaps on the other side, and that these fanciful tales are nothing more than hearsay, gossip, or just downright lies. And that was really, uh, there was really some serious attacks against Shank's character and, and um, his honesty leveled by the uh, Republican members of the committee. So I don't think any minds were necessarily made up um, at the hearing today, which I believe is still going on. However, it was interesting to hear, at least from, uh, you know, a couple of different uh, Republican members of the committee that despite, you know, their feelings about this individual, Rob Shank, um, who, by the way, was quick to say like, hey, you know, several committee members on this committee are not necessarily strangers to my organization. In fact, they've been over at some of the, you know, prayer functions, etc. In any event, I digress. Um, several Republican members of the committee did express some interest in potentially coming to the table next uh, uh, Congress, when the new Congress convenes in the new year, to look at things like ethics legislation. You know, at bottom, when you're not talking about particulars, this is an issue that can galvanize some sort of bipartisan support when you talk about making the justices of the Supreme Court, um, you know, answerable to a binding ethical code in the same way that, you know, as has been pointed out by many people, 
every single other state and federal court in the country. And so um, there might be some new movement on that front, even if this uh, whistleblower, Rob Shank, is not going to be the one necessarily to bring this over the edge. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we've talked about it before, the ethics code for the justices and issues with the ethics code have been kind of burbling up all term, all year, honestly. Um, So we'll see if this adds to the kind of the further momentum for the push to see some sort of reform there. Um, In the meantime, though, let's head back to the court. Um, Jimmy, we've heard um, for months about this major election case, Morvie Harper, um, involving the independent state legislator theory, as you mentioned earlier, um, which some critics say poses a threat to American democracy itself. Rather, I should clarify that the case here (laughs) poses a threat potentially to American democracy itself. Um, Can you give us the background of the case before we dive into our arguments? Yeah, so the background of this case is that this is one that comes out of the redistricting process following the 2020 census, where the North Carolina General Assembly, under Republican control, adopted in 2021 a new congressional map. And that map, critics say, was essentially an extreme partisan gerrymander that gave Republicans advantage in congressional elections for years to come. So this was met with an instant backlash by Democratic voters in the state who then sued to challenge the new map as a violation of the state constitution's protections for free and fair elections as constituting this gerrymander. So under North Carolina law, this challenge, it went before a three-judge panel that initially declined to block the map. But the case went up on appeal, and the state Supreme Court, reading the state's constitution's guarantee of free and fair elections, struck down the map as an egregious, illegal, partisan gerrymander. So the litigation continues, and the legislature adopts a remedial map um, after the state Supreme Court's decision, but that one was rejected, too, by the trial court in an alternate map drawn by these court-appointed special masters aided by these experts was ultimately used in the recent 2022 election. So this all brings us to Wednesday's arguments at the Supreme Court, where uh, Republican legislators in North Carolina are making the argument that the state Supreme Court in North Carolina has essentially uh, usurped total control of the uh, uh, the process of, of writing election rules, and in particular the redistricting process for itself, um, when in fact it should be the state legislature that gets to decide those things. And so this is where the independent state legislature theory pops in, right? Yeah, I mean, it's really quite simple, the argument that these North Carolina Republicans are making. They say that the federal constitution of the United States gives the legislatures, not the not the state courts, the power to write the rules governing federal elections. So by striking down this new congressional map as a partisan gerrymander, the state Supreme Court effectively usurped that power and thus violated the elections clause of the constitution. So it's considered by many to be kind of a novel theory that first gained prominence um, in the case Bush v. Gore when Chief Justice William Rehnquist, he wrote of this theory in a concurrence, Um, but it was largely kind of ignored or or, or there really wasn't much attention around it for, for most of the next two decades until this last presidential election cycle in 2020 when many Republican litigants argued that state courts were violating the elections clause by changing election rules to deal with 
the challenges imposed by the pandemic. There's one prominent example involving the Pennsylvania Supreme Court when it extended the deadline for mail-in ballots, because if you remember at the time, there were these huge backlogs uh, with the USPS. So the thinking was it would give um, the ballots more time to be counted in, in light of that, just given the like you know unprecedented uh, explosion in, in mail-in ballots during the during the pandemic. So so it started to bubble up then, but the Supreme Court didn't bite. It it, it turned away a number of challenges um, in those cases. Uh, but there was some kind of chatter, I guess, around the edges by some of the justices, and, and I think one particular one opinion in particular, where they said, "Hey, we should we should really take a look at this issue." Yeah, I remember all those cases kind of bubbling up, and again, as you said, kind of being turned away, turned away. Can you talk a little bit about why this idea is so controversial? So this case is is a kind of a good example of why this is a controversial uh, theory. So. You know, it wasn't too long ago in the case Rucho versus Common Cause, and I know I'm throwing a lot of case names out there, but recently, this you know, partisan gerrymandering has been a subject of litigation for many years, and the Supreme Court only recently held that federal courts have no business um, deciding claims regarding partisan gerrymandering. That's a non-justiciable uh, political question. That was at least what the conservative majority in the Supreme Court held. And in that decision... Um, there was at least the idea that state Supreme Courts would be a backstop where litigants could take their claims around partisan gerrymandering to the state Supreme Courts. Um, and in fact, that is exactly what happened. There's been a, uh, there's been a kind of a mini wave of litigation in state Supreme Courts around the country regarding this issue around gerrymandering. Um, so what why this is controversial is that, you know, if you are to adopt, uh, these lawmakers, the broadest version of these lawmakers' theory, then that would essentially strip state courts of the ability to review claims about extreme and egregious partisan gerrymandering. The thinking being that it removes a key check on lawmakers uh, being able to essentially entrench themselves in power with you know a minority of votes. Um, so that's why this is a controversial theory, but it's not just in the context of gerrymandering. I mean, as we saw during the 2020 election, this can apply to a whole swath of rules for federal elections. And um, if adopted by the Supreme Court, it would get rid of this, uh, what, what, what progressives and critics of the theory uh, believe to be a pretty key check on, the, the, on some of the more out-of-bounds behavior by state legislatures around the country. So turning to Wednesday's arguments, how did the justices react to this new theory? Did anyone seem particularly keen or not keen on it? Well, there was one justice in particular who was keen, and that was Justice Neil Gorsuch. Um, we knew that um, he was open to at least considering uh, this issue from a uh, past uh, concurrence. But, you know, over the course of the three hours of arguments, it became clear that he was very sympathetic to the arguments that were being made by these Republican legislators um, that, you know, the, the, the text of the elections clause means what it says when it says that the time, place, and manner of election shall be set by the state legislatures. Um, but I would say that, you know, he, he wasn't exactly on an island. There was some sympathy from some of the other justices, in particular Justice uh, Alito. But by and large, the, the majority of justices on the Supreme Court were 
were kind of skeptical. I mean, they were pretty skeptical. And that doesn't just go for the three liberal justices. But I'm talking about folks like Brett Kavanaugh, Chief Justice John Roberts, Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Um, so, I mean, let's start with the liberals, right? We had the strongest pushback from folks like uh, Elena Kagan, who was talking about the, quote, big consequences that this theory would bring. It would uh, say that if a legislature engages in the most extreme forms of gerrymandering, um, there is no state constitutional remedy for that, even if the courts think that that's a violation of the Constitution. It would say that legislatures could enact all manner of restrictions on voting, get rid of all kinds of (coughs) voter protections that the state constitution, in fact, prohibits. Uh, It might allow the legislatures to insert themselves, to give themselves a role in the certification of elections and, and, um, uh, and, and, and the way election results are um, calculated. So, um, and in all these ways, I think what might strike a person is that uh, this is a proposal that gets rid of the normal checks and balances on the way um, big governmental decisions are made in this country. And, and you might think that it gets rid of all those checks and balances at exactly the time when they are needed most. So while Kagan, I would say, you know, as is pretty typical for her, she was very focused on this This theory seems to be foreclosed by our recent precedents. Just as Katanji Brown-Jackson, on the other hand, she, she really wanted to delve into the underlying constitutional question, i.e., you know, when the U.S. Constitution delegates election rulemaking authority to the, quote, state legislature, does it actually strip state courts of their ordinary powers of judicial review under the state constitution? So, but she seems totally unconvinced by that. And over and over again, she's basically questioning the underlying premise, saying the legislature is a, quote, creature, that's, that's the word she uses, a creature of the state constitution, and that's where it derives its power. She says, it's the state constitution that is telling the legislature when and under what circumstances it can actually act as the legislature. So you can't just rip the elections clause out of the federal constitution and read it in a vacuum to separate the state legislature from you know the, the documents across the country that actually establish the constitutionality of the state legislature being state constitutions. Um, but like I said, you know, several conservatives on the court also seemed pretty skeptical, and they had concerns um, in particular about an argument that was being made by David Thompson. He's the attorney for these Republican lawmakers. And Thompson, over and over again, clarified that there could still be these procedural limits on this theory. So, for instance, in states where governors have veto authority over congressional maps, that in Thompson's telling, would not violate the elections clause because that would be a procedural limit on the state legislature. But substantive limits, he says, are different. And a state Supreme Court finding the map to be, like here, an illegal gerrymander, that's an unconstitutional substantive limit on the power of a state legislature. So he's making this distinction between substantive and procedural limits. There, that really did not seem to get very far with several members of the court who were like, where are you getting this from? So Robert- Where is he part- getting this from? <laughs> <laughs> well, he's getting this by reading precedent of the Supreme Court, including um, some of the uh, opinions associated with the 2000 litigation uh, over the 2000 election in Bush v. Gore and Bush v. Uh, uh, Palm Beach County. 
Um, but it, I mean, a, a number of the justices basically said he was way over reading those precedents and finding things that really weren't there. Um, Roberts in particular is like, you know, once you make the concession that a governor veto still applies and is not unconstitutional under the elections clause, that really, I think he said it's quote, significantly undermines the case. And Justice Amy Coney Barrett, she pushed back quite a bit on this substantive procedural distinction as well. Um, she said, okay, it, you know, it sounds like it's pretty easy line drawing, but in practice, that's anything but. And she mentions the fact that she used to be a, a civil pr- procedure professor for many years. And it's like pretty hard to, to do these line drawings between substantive rules and procedural rules. Um, so she says, why should we take solace in a substance procedure definition as a more manageable line? And uh, Justice Kavanaugh is like, so what's your best case on the substantive procedural distinction? And he mentioned the case I was just talking about, Bush v. Uh, Palm Beach County, uh, the 2000 per curiam ruling over the Florida recount. And uh, Justice Kavanaugh was like, I don't see that as standing for that proposition at all. It didn't really do any more than you know the underlying holding. So yeah, like I said, he, he got... He, he did seem to get a fair bit of pushback, but I would say that, you know, if the broadest theory of uh, the independent state legislature theory kind of met a tough audience, that being that state courts have absolutely no role to play in reviewing the actions of state legislatures when it comes to federal election rules, I would say that the opposite was equally concerning. The idea that state Supreme Courts have total review powers over state legislatures. So they seemed, at least to several of the justices, especially uh, the conservative side, they were trying to strike some kind of a balance here. Given kind of this interesting breakdown uh, uh, among the justices and in the arguments, what do you think an opinion might look like? I mean, an opinion, I don't even think the justices know what an opinion is going to look like in this case. And that was kind of what they were searching for is what's the standard, right? So we don't want to say on the one hand that state courts have no power to review, you know, uh, federal election rules, but we also want to impose some kind of limits. And that's where it gets a little bit complicated. Um, so the the essentially the standard that the uh, the the state of North Carolina, backed by the federal government, backed by the voters in this case, they're they're not saying that um, state courts should have unfettered discretion to basically rewrite federal election rules for themselves. They just say like in the in the vast majority of cases, like unless it's a super super rare power grab, like an obvious and naked power grab untethered to any kind of state law or state constitutional law then it does not rise to the level of an elections clause violation. Now, that language is, it's obviously, you know, it's hard to kind of drill down on what exactly that means. And um, I think one of the attorneys described it as like, you know, when a state court is acting like a legislator or like a legislature, that could be maybe an instance in which that could give rise to concerns under the elections clause that you're, you know, usurping the power of the state legislature. And then you heard Justice Kagan in response to that being like, well, you know, that that sounds great in theory, but like, you know, she's saying like every member of this court at one time or another has accused some other judge of acting like a policymaker or acting like a legislature. It's kind of just what judges say to one another. So she's kind of concerned 
that maybe the rare exception to 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 elections clause violations could potentially swallow the rule, you know, that state courts do have this authority because I mean, if we've seen any like if there's been any lesson in, you know, the Supreme Court's recent history at least, it's that things like, you know, um, egregiously wrong, you know, uh, the, the idea is that you shouldn't overturn precedent that's egregiously wrong. Well, it's all very much in the eyes of the beholder, as Justice Katanji Brown Jackson said. So it will be interesting to see, even if the Supreme Court rejects the broadest form of this independent state legislature theory, what standards or rules they do announce will be really interesting to see and could potentially even if they, even if the Supreme Court didn't intend this, it could potentially give rise to more litigation under the elections clause. So yeah, um, I couldn't predict exactly how it's going to come out, obviously, but uh, definitely one to watch. Agreed, and I think I will follow up your prediction on Monday's case three or three creative being one of the last like opinions we'll probably get. Uh, I have a feeling this one will be joining it. <laughs> um, but Jimmy, I think that just about does it for us today. Thank you so much for breaking that down. Thank you, Natalie. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you like this episode, please leave a review. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. And for more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term.